The Salmalkin's health is at present very poor, and he regrets not being able to attend this, the first annual lecture in his honor. I hope that those of you attending the lecture this evening will, at some point during the reception, which follows it in room 523, sign the guest book, which we plan to present to him later. And please include your address as well as your name, if you do not already figure in my address book, which is extremely unlikely, so that we can in due time send you a printed copy of today's proceedings. Meriden Steinauer stands ready to receive them. I'd like to note here the presence of the new dean of the School of Library Service, Robert Wedgworth. Mr. Wedgworth, most of you know him already, I suspect. Please say hello to him later. I also note the presence of Marianne O'Brien Melkin. All of you know her already, I'm sure. She will be down the hall in 523 Butler after the lecture, too, to take messages to Saul. Saul Malkin entered the antiquarian book trade in 1922 as a book scout and worked in every aspect of that business over the next half century. He is perhaps best known, especially to the younger persons in the audience, as founder and editor of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, about which one OP dealer once said, I have two Bibles, the Holy Bible and A.B. Bookman's Weekly. A.B. Bookman's has, since its inception in 1948, provided a mixture of dealers' lists of books wanted and for sale in combination with front matter, news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians. So Malkin and his wife, Marianne O'Brien Malkin, continued to edit the weekly until 1972, when they sold it to its present editor, here tonight, Jacob L. Charnowski, under whose direction it continues to serve its indispensable function in the book trade. It seems to me particularly appropriate that the Columbia University School of Library Service sponsor a lecture in Saul Malkin's honor. We have here what is now perhaps the most active educational program in rare books that ever was. But until now, we've not had a named lecturership to provide the jewel for our bibliographical crown. Until now, indeed, my stance has always had to be we get packages from home, we get movies, we get shows, we get speeches from our skipper and advice from Tokyo Rose, we get letters doused with poifum, we get dizzy from the smell. What have we got? Well, until now, we ain't got a named lectureship, which we now have. <laughs> I hope to see you at the annual Saul M. Malkin lecture next year and annually thereafter. Our lecturer tonight is Michael Winship, editor of Bibliography of American Literature, the bibliography of U.S. literary authors who died before 1931. He is no stranger to these shores, having taught in rare book school every year since its inception, since 1983. This is something of a red letter day for him, since today is his birthday. Many happy returns to him, and many thanks for his agreeing to deliver the first annual Saul M. Malkin Lecture in Bibliography at Columbia University, his subject, Hermann Ernst Ludwig, America's Forgotten Bibliographer, Michael Winship. the New York bookseller William Gowans dedicated the fourth edition of his catalog of books on Freemasonry and kindred subjects 
as a token of affection, affectionate remembrance to the memory of Herman Ludovic, Esquire, who he claimed was one of the most accomplished bibliographers that America ever possessed. In a brief advertisement at the beginning of the catalog, Gowans further elaborates the reasons for his esteem. He concludes, and I quote, book lovers and after generations will bless his memory for having brought together such varied and scattered fragments, for having given them, given them a permanent form. This talk is an attempt to justify Gowans in his belief. Hermann Ernst Ludwig was born on October 14, 1810 in Dresden, Saxony, where his father served as a subaltern officer, a Landaxis Einnehmer in the State Revenue Service. Despite the limited means provided by a civil service salary, Hermann was given an excellent education. He attended the Kreuzschule in Dresden, and at 18 he continued his education at the University of Leipzig, and after 1831 at Göttingen. At university, he studied law in all its branches, specializing in the local laws of nations, the history of diplomacy, and legal philosophy and history. He received the degree of Juris Utriesque Doctor from Leipzig. After the completion of his studies, he made a tour of France before returning to Dresden in 1835 to take up the practice of law. On October 12, 1836, he married Maria Roch, a woman of considerable means and social accomplishments, in Pirna, where his parents had then settled. For their honeymoon, the newlyweds set out on a nine-month tour of the South German states, Austria, Italy, and France, where Hermann made extensive contacts which proved useful when he returned to Dresden to continue his legal practice. At that time, Dresden was a cosmopolitan city, and the young lawyer must have enjoyed a pleasant and stimulating social and professional life. Ludwig's fascination with books is already apparent in these early years. As a schoolboy, he had shown a fondness for reading and is said to have carried home every book that he could lay his hands on. During his university studies and travels, he visited Europe's major libraries and book collections and made the acquaintance of librarians, collectors, and scholars. Three early publications resulted from this interest. The first, Le Livre des Annas, was published in Dresden in 1837 in only 50 copies. Written in French, it is an annotated checklist of those books called Anna, which gather together after their decease the memorable sayings, anecdotes, and observations of eminent men. Based on previous lists compiled by Gabriel Peignot, Friedrich Adolf Ebert, and the minister of Nostitz and Jenkendorf, this work of 40 pages was recognized as the most complete list of such works that had been compiled. It was privately printed by the author, who signed himself with his initials in the characterization bibliophile for distribution among his literary friends. Today it is a truly scarce work. I have examined only two copies. One of these, now at the uh, Newbury Library in Chicago, is inscribed to Thomas Frognall Dibden, the most renowned English bibliophile and bibliographer of his generation. The following year, 35 copies of an eight-page supplement of addenda was also printed, though I have not been able to locate a copy of this. The second work, Sua Bibliothéconomie, was printed in Leipzig in 1840 as a memorial to the 400th anniversary of Gutenberg's invention of book printing. In this essay, Ludovic presents his conception of the appropriate catalog for a public library of his day. He recognized that the 19th century had brought about a tremendous growth in the number of books being published and an increasing demand by an educated public for access to the information that they contain, features that modern scholars have characterized as the German Leserevolution. 
He believed that this situation required new approaches to the organization of knowledge represented by books, especially in large public libraries. He proposed that access to this knowledge be provided by two complementary catalogs. The first, the alphabetical nominal or dictionary catalog, was to provide access to books by author and title, giving their shelf mark and information concerning defects, etc., as well as reference to more complete bibliographical information contained in a second, real or classified catalog. <coughs> this latter was to present a rational and systematic guide to the literature of a subject by providing complete bibliographical descriptions and critical notices of all relevant publications, whether present in a particular collection or not. Taken together, these two catalogs would, Ludovic believed, best serve the public library by providing a guide for its arrangement, use, and future development. Whereas the simpler nominal catalog could be prepared by any well-trained librarian, he recognized that the real catalog would require true subject expertise. He proposed that it could best be prepared by those who, like himself, had finished their specialized studies at university but who had not yet become fully committed to their professional careers and family life. As an illustration of his ideas, he prepared and appended to this essay a sample catalog of books at the Royal Public Library in Dresden relating to the sources for pre-Justinian Roman law, beginning with Aymar de Ravais' Le Bruit de Historia Juris Civilis et Pontificiae, printed in Valence in 1515, and ending with Heinrich Eduard Dirksen's Übersicht der bisherigen Versuchen zur Kritik und Herstellung des Textes der Zwölf Tafelfragments, Leipzig, 1824. Ludwig's third publication from these years, Die Diplomatie und ihre neuesten Arbeiter, is a bibliographical essay discussing recent publications relating to the science and practice of diplomacy. Published originally as three articles in the Dresden magazine, Blätter für literarische Unterhaltung from 1838 to 1842, a separate edition of only 50 copies was printed, probably in 1844. In this essay, Ludovic reviews, in turn, general guides and manuals dealing with diplomacy, the literature reflecting the rise in importance of the consular service, and finally, the American Henry Wheaton's influential Histoire du progrès du droit des gens en Europe, Leipzig, 1841, which was written in French in response to a prize offered by the Institute of France. A common theme throughout Ludovic's essay is that the spirit of the times had forced diplomacy to abandon its emphasis on ceremony and pomp based on an aristocratic worldview and to turn instead to a more practical approach which reflected the rise in importance of commercial exchanges between nations. These three publications give us a picture of a well-educated young lawyer with a special interest in books. Although the Livre des Annas seems purely bibliographic in nature, the other two reflect a liberal political attitude which places value on achievement and practicality over aristocracy and privilege. If, as seems possible to me, the essay on diplomacy was written with the hope of earning the author a position in Saxony's diplomatic or consular service, Ludovic's liberalism may have stood in the way of such an appointment. In any case, this essay makes clear that Ludovic saw in the free institutions of the United States of America a democratic model which suited his political philosophy. No wonder that he decided to follow so many other European travelers and make an inspection tour of his own. 
Ludovic and his wife sailed from Hamburg for America on May 26, 1844, aboard the ship Howard. After a stormy crossing, land was sighted on July 8th, and two days later the passengers disembarked on Staten Island. After a brief stay in Manhattan's summer heat, Ludovic and his wife set out on their tour to inspect America's literary and political institutions. Although no complete account of the journey survives, its general outline can be reconstructed. In the middle of August, the Ludovics visited Boston and Cambridge, probably having traveled by way of Connecticut and Rhode Island. From there, they toured New Hampshire and Vermont, before crossing into Canada, where they visited Quebec and Montreal. By the 1st of October, they had arrived back in New York City by way of Niagara Falls, Buffalo, Rochester, Utica, and Albany. They next set out for Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C. The winter months they spent in the South, where they visited Charleston, Savannah, and New Orleans. On the return trip to the East Coast, they probably traveled up the Mississippi and Ohio rivers by way of St. Louis and Cincinnati. By early summer of 1845, they were back in Washington, and in July, the heat drove the travelers north to New York City, and in August, they continued on to Boston for a second visit. Ludwig has left us no personal narrative of his tour, though it seems to have been primarily a bibliographical one. Wherever he went, Ludovic made a thorough inspection of Americans' public and private libraries and made the acquaintance of the foremost American scholars and book collectors. We know, for example, that while he was in Cambridge in August 1844, he not only examined the collections of the Harvard University Library in the newly built Gore Hall, but that he also met Henry W. Longfellow, poet and professor of modern languages, the historian Jared Sparks, and the jurist Joseph Story. Later, in Washington, he became friends with Peter Force, who was then engaged in collecting, studying, and reprinting the basic documents of the early years of the American Republic. Wherever he visited, he made careful notes of the books and other sources that he examined, and of the condition and characteristics of both our libraries and book trade. These notes served as the basis for a series of pioneering articles and bibliographies, which provide our chief insight into his reactions to American institutions and life. Already in November 1844, while he was in Washington, D.C., the first of these articles was prepared for publication. It is an annotated checklist of books that serve as a guide to literature relating to America, a, a bibliography of American historical bibliography. The list begins with Antonio de Leon Pinella's Epitome de la Biblioteca Oriental y Occidental, printed in Madrid in 1629, and includes such classic works as Bishop White Kennett's Bibliothecae Americanae Primordia, the catalogues of the private collections of David Bailey Warden, Henri Tourneau Campin, and the Colonel Thomas Aspinwall, booksellers' catalogues prepared by Obadiah Rich, William Gowans, and Bartlett and Welford, and two manuscript compilations copied from Spain. The annotations are often extensive and give particulars on the scope and contents of each work, its relative value and scarcity, and its bibliographical peculiarities. The checklist appeared as the first in a series of articles by Ludovic with the general title, Bibliography and Libraries in the United States of America, in the Leipzig Bibliographical Periodical Serapium on July 31, 1845. Two further articles for the series were written during the winter of 1844 and 1845, but the manuscripts were lost in the mails between New Orleans and New York. 
Only after Ludwig's return to the East in 1845 was he able to set to work rewriting them, and they were finally sent off to Leipzig early the following year. They were published in Serapium from April 30th to July 15th, 1846. The second article is a guide to the libraries and private book collections of the United States. Arranged alphabetically by state and then by cities, it gives a detailed account of the size and strength of each collection. Although lists of American libraries had already appeared, most notably in George Palmer Putnam's American Facts, published in London in 1845, Ludwig's compilation, based on personal observation, far excelled them in detail and completeness. Although he believed that no major collection was overlooked, Ludwig recognized that the list was far from complete and regretted that lack of funds and time made a fuller list impossible. Ludovic was impressed by the number of published library catalogs he found here and included notes on these, which make up a useful bibliographical checklist in themselves. To his special delight, he found that the systematic catalog of books in the collection of the Mercantile Library Association of the City of New York, published in 1837, provided exactly the type of access that he had advocated in his essay to a bibliotheconomy. This curious example of American library catalog seems as little appreciated today as Ludovic's own contributions. When, in 1848, Charles C. Jewett reported on his work that was to lead to his well-known Notices of Public Libraries in the United States of America, published in Washington in 19 1851, he acknowledged his debt to Ludovic with this statement. It is a singular and to us mortifying fact that the most accurate account of American libraries was published in Germany and has never been translated into English. The fullness and accuracy of the details which Ludovic has given are remarkable. I have made free use of them and have found my labors much facilitated by so doing. A later comment by Jewett is more succinct. He says, his was the work of a pioneer. Now the third of Ludovic's articles gives a description of the American book trade as Ludovic had observed it. Particular attention is, a paid to, is paid to American book trade bibliography, and he gives a list of periodicals and compilations that serve to record the output of American publishers. This list begins with the catalog of all books printed in the United States, printed for the booksellers in Boston in January 1804, a copy of which he had discovered in the Society Library in Charleston, South Carolina, and which he was the first to find. A description of America's major book dealers of both current and antiquarian books follows. In conclusion, Ludovic addresses the question of the role that a German bookseller might serve in the United States. He contrasts the well-organized system of book distribution in Germany, centered on the Börsenverein, with the unregulated competition he found on this side of the Atlantic. He concludes that a clever German who was able to adapt to American conditions would succeed on account of the ever-increasing number of German immigrants and the superior character of German literature. <laughs> His observations must have been supported by Rudolf Garagu, who had been sent by some 80 German booksellers to make a similar investigation. Ludovic's essay, which appeared also as an off-print, may have had an important impact which has not been recognized. During the next decades, many Germans, including Garagu, were to establish themselves in the United States as publishers and booksellers. One of these was Frederick Leipold, who as founder and editor of Publishers Weekly and the American Catalog, was to play an important, almost crucial role in American book trade bibliography.
Together with these three articles, Ludovic prepared for Serapium three bibliographical notes published as Curiosities of American Literature. The first appeared on August 15, 1844, and describes Peter Force's 1842 printing of those sections of the Journal of Votes and Proceedings of the General Assembly of the Colony of New York, which, because no copy could then be found, had not been included in the 1820 reprint authorized by the State of New York. The second and more interesting note first appeared on August 31, 1846, and gives a full bibliographical description of the Bay Psalm book, the earliest surviving imprint from North America. Ludovic's description, based on the examination of copies he had found at the Massachusetts Historical Society, Harvard University, and the American Antiquarian Society, is surprisingly modern. The title page is transcribed with line endings. The contents and signature collation are given. The peculiarities of the running titles are noted, and the provenance and faults of the copies are detailed. His approach is sophisticated indeed for 1845. The third of these notes is a list of 21 Anna relating to American subjects and personalities to supplement the work he had published in 1837. Now, if Ludovic's contribution to American bibliography were limited to these articles and notes, the bibliographical fruits of his tour, he would still deserve more recognition than he has received. But his major contributions were still to come. Book-length bibliographies of the literature of American local history and American Aboriginal languages. It is impossible to know whether or not he would have compiled these works if he had returned to Saxony late in 1845 as he had planned, but one cannot help but suspect that his continued dedication to American subjects was closely related to his decision to remain in the United States and to adopt American citizenship. It is entirely fitting that in a country of immigrants, many pioneer bibliographers would themselves be immigrants. The work of the Leon brothers and P.K. Foley, also immigrants, in the field of American literary bibliography follows the same pattern. The reasons for Ludovic's decision to settle in the United States were clearly political. His position is described at length in a letter of March 31, 1846, to Albert Gallatin. Here he explains that his American tour, undertaken for purely scholarly reason, reasons, had been misunderstood by the authorities in Saxony, who questioned his political allegiance. This misunderstanding had not been helped by his bibliographical articles, which showed a clear fascination and admiration for American history and institutions. Ludovic hints that unnamed enemies had taken advantage of the situation to undermine his position at home, though his friends assured him that a contrite submission to the authorities would remedy the problem. Ludovic, for his part, found that he had developed during his travels a commitment to freedom of thought and expression and was no longer willing to submit to the political censure and constraints of his homeland. Thus, he had made his decision to remain in the United States where he expected to enjoy a free and productive life. The date of Ludovic's decision to remain on this side of the Atlantic cannot be established precisely. In a letter to Peter Forrest from New York of October 24, 1845, Ludovic explains that a very strong headache had prevented him from sorting his books in preparation for shipping them home, and thus it prevented his departure on the ship Java as planned, but that he now expected to sail on the Oneida on November 8, 1845. Again, illness, this time his wife's, prevented the departure. And in a letter of December 10th to Longfellow, he declared that they had decided to spend the winter on Staten Island. 
Here Ludovic was busily engaged in rewriting his articles for Serapium and in bringing his bibliographical notes into order. These were to grow into his bibliography of American local history, which he planned to have printed in France when he returned to Europe the next spring. This work was printed instead in New York the following March, by which time the decision to settle here must have been made. Ludovic's March letter to Gallatin accompanied a copy of his newly printed bibliographical essay with the title, The Literature of American Local History. Um, in, in this bibliography, he gives a clear expression of his political beliefs. In an introductory essay to the work, he gives an extraordinary statement of the political philosophy that lay behind his bibliographical investigations. The introduction begins as follows. No people in the world can have so great an interest in the history of their country as that of the United States of North America, for there are none who jo enjoy an equally great share in their country's historical acts. And who would not love his offspring, who remain indifferent even to the smallest incidents affecting them? There is also no country in the world whose history ought to be of higher interest to its citizens than the United States, as their history contains treasures of experience and politics in politics, as novel in the old as in the new world. It contains the annals of a new era in the political and moral history of mankind and points out the way to that height of perfection which a free nation ought continually to strive to attain and which must be, therefore, preeminently desirable to the citizens of the United States. For they have entirely excluded from their system of government the antiquated principle of prescriptive rights and have adopted in its stead the people's right to govern themselves. But this eloquent statement of his faith in the American democratic experiment is further borne out in the subject of his bibliography. For he saw his attempt to investigate and describe the literature of American local history as an attempt to adapt the principles of democracy to the art of the historian. The history of the United States could not be adequately written by accounts of men in power, successful warriors, and distinguished statesmen, but must depend rather on a broader, more democratic base which chronicled the social history of common citizens and the spirit of their age. It was precisely this side of American history that he had set out to document through his study of American local history. But he insisted that the results were of more than local interest. He writes that, quote, to show and explain this movement the incessant advancing of mankind, guided by its pioneers to a daily more intimate consonance with natural laws and natural truth, is the peaceful task of the historians of democracy. And such a study must begin with a bibliographical investigation, he thought, for, quote, in the deeper studies of the various sciences, bibliography, the knowledge of their respective literatures, becomes more and more indispensable. He states further that, true bibliographical knowledge is not only the safest insurance against literary depredations and mystifications and the surest test of originality, but also an actual savings bank of, for time and money in literary pursuits. Historical sciences especially, being founded on former records only and depending principally upon a thorough and critical use and knowledge of existing sources, stand more in need than others of the aid of bibliography as the topographical statistics of literature. The bibliography itself is limited to works relating to American local history and geography published by Americans at home or abroad 
as well as foreign works that had been reprinted in the United States. Although American writings on religious, educational, and literary institutions, and on natural history, the state papers and laws of indiv individual states, as well as biographical works, were left for more specialized bibliographies, Ludwig's list fills 180 pages. It begins with a list of general historical collections, followed by lists of regional writings relating to New England and the West. Next, the literature relating to individual states is described. The states are arranged alphabetically, and under each state, writings are separated into those that relate to the state as a whole and those that relate to individual counties or towns. An appendix lists material relating to Oregon, the Rocky Mountains, and the Far West, divided into three, three sections treating their history and geography, official United States expeditions, and other voyages and travels. The entries themselves are brief, but frequently include information on pagination, format, maps and illustrations, reprints, and reviews. Both separately published books and articles contained in part both separately published books and articles contained in periodicals and larger works are included. Recognizing the importance of novels in chronicling the life, manner, and customs of the Western regions, a list of 17 of these are, is appended to that regional list. For its day, it is an impressive compilation, and I, for one, would readily grant Ludwig's claim that although completeness was not achieved, no standard work which lies within the plan of the writer will be found wanting. In compiling this work, Ludovic relied on the bibliographical notes that he compiled during his tour. In his introduction, Ludovic singles out for special gratitude the collections of the historical societies in Worcester, Boston, and New York, and the private collection of Peter Force. Other commentators recognized the help that he received from the Hartford collector George Brinley and the New York bookseller William Gowans. The work was printed for the author in New York by Robert Craighead in March 18. 1856, in an edition of 500 copies. These Ludovic distributed half in Europe and half in America to literary acquaintances as a token of his esteem. The work is dedicated to Peter Force, to whom he presented the manuscript as an indication of his gratitude. Copies were also presented to the major American libraries that he had visited with the hope that it might provide the inspiration for and facilitate the foundation of an American historical collection that would prove useful to further researches into the history of our country. A supplement of additional items that relate to the local history of New York was printed in Charles Fenno Hoffman's magazine, The Literary World, on February 19, 1848, and was also issued in a 20-page off-print of only 30 copies. It is difficult today to estimate how Ludovic's bibliographical gift was viewed by its recipients. I have found no contemporary reviews. One measure of appreciation is that he was named an honorary or corresponding member, member of the New York, New Hampshire, Georgia, and Iowa Historical Societies, and of the National Institute, later the Smithsonian Institution, the Geological Institute, and the New England Historic Genealogical Society. Similar recognition is suggested in the draft of a letter of thanks from George Bancroft, one of the most prominent American historians of his generation, which expresses Quote, his hearty thanks for a volume which will not only advance historical science but extend the current knowledge of the character and resources of our country. In 1857, an obituary, probably written by the Boston bookseller Samuel Gardner Drake, reports as follows. 
In a long letter written in September 1846, Ludovic incidentally mentions that he had received very kind and flattering notices of his books from abroad, of his book from abroad, and also in the United States. He particularly mentions a letter from Henry Clay, of which he says, I cannot say how happy I felt that just this man was so kind in appreciating all the troubles I had in collecting the notices. In 1860, William Gowans wrote of this work as follows. This book possesses very considerable merit, as well for its accuracy as for its intrinsic worth as an index to American local history. The diligent and conscientious author copied every title from the respective books themselves, and not from catalogs, as is too frequently the case in making such compilations, except in a few cases where he had titles sent to him by his book-loving friends throughout the States, whose accuracy and taste he could depend upon. It is the first, and so far the only bibliography of its kind, relating to this subject. But a different story is told by Rudolf Garrigou in a biographical memoir published in 1867. He writes, The book fell flat. Be it that bibliography, then hardly known here, was considered a puerile waste of time, be it that those who were well fitted to appreciate the immense and well-directed labor embodied in Ludovic's book, these people were reluctant to accord the foreigner the full measure of praise to which he was clearly entitled. The fact remains that for about 250 copies of his book sent as presents to as many literary men or to libraries, the author received just 27 letters of acknowledgement. He was seriously hurt by this slight and in course of time took a characteristic revenge. Continuing his labors in collecting bibliographical material, he printed a supplement to his book, but struck off only 30 copies, of which he retained three and sent 27 to the gentleman who had acknowledged his first gift. <laughs> well, Sabin gives a similar account in his dictionary, though perhaps based only on Garagu's report. It is true that the supplement was separately printed in only 30 copies, but it appeared also in the literary world. The only direct indication that I have found of Ludovic's feelings is in a letter to Peter Force of March 7, 1848, which accompanied a presentation copy of the supplement. There he states that he had, quote, only 30 extra copies printed, a number more than sufficient for the real interest shown in my researches. Considering the modern neglect of Ludovic, it is small wonder that many of his contemporaries were not able to understand or appreciate the worth of his bibliographical efforts. A final result of Ludovic's bibliographical and historical researches during his American tour is provided by a long essay on the history of political parties in the United States up to 1846, which he hoped to publish in Germany. In a letter to Longfellow of October 26, 1846, he describes the composition of this piece as follows. I was the whole summer and fall busily engaged in writing a historical sketch of the political parties of this country. Certainly a most disagreeable business. <laughs> However, I performed it as conscientiously as I could, and if ever the printed copies of my sketch, provided it passes the censure in Germany, come to the United States, you will see I tried to find out and to tell also the truth. Apparently it proved too liberal for the German censors, and first appeared in print in 1851 in New York in the weekly magazine Die Hummel. Fifty off-prints were also produced, and I have only been able to examine it in a sole surviving copy, 
inscribed to his father, now at the Library of Congress. In this essay, Ludovic traces the basic dichotomy in our political history between democratic and federalist impulses, an effort that is particularly interesting since he was faced at the time of his visit with the rise of several new political parties, notably the Locofocos and Nativists, which were in the process of bringing about an end to what modern historians recognize as the second American party system of Whigs and Jacksonian Democrats. The essay ends with an eloquent plea to fellow German immigrants to participate in our political process in order to bring about the realization of an ideal democratic republic as a model for the world. In the meanwhile, Ludovic set about establishing himself in his new homeland. In late 1846, he took up the practice of law in New York, with offices first at 62 Wall Street and after 1848 at 35 Wall Street. He devoted himself to the legal problems of his fellow German immigrants, and according to one account, specialized in problems of inheritance. In 1851, he took Charles Henry Smith as partner, and the following year, F. Gustav Finke also joined the practice. For a brief time, he made his residence at 61 Greenwich Street in Manhattan, but by 1849, he had moved to 248 Clinton Street near DeGraw in Brooklyn, where he lived until his death in 1856. Ludovic's financial position during these years is unclear. His travels, which lasted nearly two years, must have required considerable means. It seems probable that his decision to remain in the United States involved a financial sacrifice, and he may have suffered further losses, losses as a result of the unsuccessful German Revolution of 1848. By all accounts, his legal practice was successful, though apparently more useful than lucrative. A fire at his office in November 1854, in which a safe that he had trusted proved to be unreliable, was apparently disastrous and further pinched him financially. Nonetheless, he provided hospitality at his home in Brooklyn for visiting literary celebrities and also generously supported, with both time and money, numerous community activities. These activities deserve further mention. The failure of the German Revolution occasioned an influx of immigration from Germany after 1848, and Ludovic was a leading force in those organizations which were formed in New York to provide assistance, the Deutsche Gesellschaft and the Deutsche Volksverein. He served the latter as its first vice president, and an address to that organization of March 2, 1848, entitled Das Auswanderungswesen in Deutschland, he described the situation of his fellow emigrants. This address is divided into three parts, which discuss respectively the legal protection accorded to emigrants, both by the German states and this country, the periodicals which provided information for emigrants on future opportunities, and the organizations which had been formed to aid them. He proposed that the Deutsche Volksverein could serve an important function by providing useful information to German immigrants to the United States and legal support to protect them from swindlers and other charlatans who stood ready to take advantage of their ignorance. On January 9, 1847, the Deutsche Liederkranz Society of New York, one of America's pioneer musical societies, was founded, with Ludwig named as its first president. Ludwig also wrote the lyrics for the Festgesang composed for the third anniversary ball sponsored by that society on January 9, 1850. His fondness for music had already expressed itself in Germany, 
where he had become an accomplished pianist and singer and studied the compositions of master musicians of many nations. His surviving correspondence is full of indications of his active encouragement of the careers of European musicians on this side of the Atlantic. The Deutscher Liederkranz, over which he presided until his death in 1856, provided an important social outlet for his musical interests and talents. Ludovic was also an active Freemason. In 1828, he had joined the lodge Zum Goldenen Apfel in Dresden, where he held various offices, and he was also a member of the Grand Lodge of Saxony. He resigned his position in the lodge in Dresden in 1844, before his departure to the United States, but on May 26, 1852, he joined the German Pythagoras Lodge in New York. He was appointed deputy master of this lodge on March 26, 1855. During the 1850s, this lodge became involved in a dispute between the Grand Lodges of New York and Hamburg, in which the Pythagoras Lodge broke away from the jurisdiction of New York and became subordinate to the German Lodge. Ludwig wrote a legal brief concerning this dispute with the title Zwei Fragen aus dem Freimaurerrechte, which was printed in 1856. In 1853, he helped form the German Masonic New York Federation, which he served as chairman from July 1854 until his death. I've already indicated that Ludovic was a member of a number of American historical societies, but his most active participation in scholarly societies during these years seems to have been reserved for the American Ethnological Society, founded in 1842. In 1845, Ludovic is listed as an honorary member from Dresden of this society but by 1848 he is listed as a full member. On October 26, 1846, he wrote to Longfellow that he was preparing a short paper on American antiquities and ethnology to be read before the society, though I find no record of the date that it was delivered. In 1854, he served as corresponding secretary to the society. His ethnological interests are also represented in his surviving correspondence with American scholars Ephraim George Queer, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, and John Russell Bartlett, and in an article on the history of Mexican Aborigines, which was published in German translation in Das Ausland in December 1854, and in French translation in the Bulletin de la Société de Géographie of Paris the following year. Ludovic's ethnological interests are also reflected in his final bibliographical contribution to American scholarship, a bibliography of American Aboriginal languages. Compiled during 1851 and 1852, it lists grammars and vocabularies, both manuscript and printed, of American Indian languages, building on Johann Severin Vater's more general Linguarum Totius Orbis Index, which had been printed in Berlin in 1815 and had been updated by Bernhard Dulg in a second edition published in 1847. Ludwig's manuscript over 400 pages in length, was deposited in the library of the American Ethnological Society in 1852, and a copy was also sent to Professor Jolg in Krakow. It might never have been published if not for the efforts of another enterprising German scholar and publisher, Nicholas Tribner of London. Tribner met Ludovic in New York in 1855 and convinced him to allow the publication of the work in Europe. In July 1855, Ludovic had a copy of the manuscript made and was busily correcting and updating it. Trubner carried it back to London with him, where he edited, edited it and made further additions based on collections available to him in England and on contributions from other scholars. 
Ludovic received the first proof sheets in July 1856, and 172 pages were set in type at the time of his death the following December. Originally announced for December 15, 1856, the book, with further additions and corrections by the American philologist William W. Turner, was published just a year later as the first volume of a projected series with the title Tribner's Bibliotheca Glottica. The published work fills over 280 pages, including introductory matter, addenda, and index and corrigenda. The main section of 209 pages is an annotated checklist of articles, books, and manuscript compilations relating to the languages of the Aborigines of both North and South America, arranged alphabetically by tribe. It was favorably noticed by scholars and the press on both continents. At the time of his death, on December 12, 1856, Ludovic was not yet 50 years of age. I have not been over the cause of death, but several obituaries suggest that overwork was a contributing factor. According to Henry Murphy, quote, he died of disappointment, both from a wasting away of a not inconsiderable fortune and from a want of recognition of his claims to distinction. He left no children, and his widow survived him only a short time. She returned to Germany and died there within six months of her husband. Ludovic may not have received during his lifetime the general recognition that he desired or deserved, but it is clear that he left a small group of friends, bookmen, and scholars who recognized his worth. This group included the antiquarian booksellers William Gowans and Samuel Gardner Drake, the publisher Nicholas Tribner, the printer and historian Joel Munsell, and the scholar and book collector Henry C. Murphy. These men left in their published notices and memoirs and surviving correspondence a record of their friendship. They described Ludovic as amiable and sociable, generous and open-hearted, scholarly and hard-working, but their chief appreciation is reserved for his bibliographical efforts. How are we today to evaluate this work? In 1859, the second edition of Tribner's Bibliographical Guide to American Literature was published in London. In the introduction to this work, Tribner attempted to furnish the materials for a more comprehensive history of the development of the intellectual powers of a great and powerful people. The first section of this introduction is a bibliographical prolego prolegomena, a guide to American historical bibliography, which turns out to be a slightly updated English translation of the first of Ludovic's articles published in Serapium in 1845. A similar fate awaited Ludovic's other bibliographical work. We have already noted how the second article in Serapium, which listed and described American libraries and book collections, was incorporated by Charles C. Jewett into his notices published in 1851. The third article, which described American book trade periodicals, served Adolf Grauel in 1898 when he compiled his book trade bibliography in the United States in the 19th century. Ludovic's bibliographies of Anna and American Aboriginal languages certainly provided a useful base for the two works that superseded them. P. Namour's Bibliographie des ouvrages publiés sous le nom d'Anna, published in Brussels in 1839, and James C. Pilling's Proof Sheets of a Bibliography of the Languages of the North American Indians published in Washington, D.C. in 1885. The situation with his bibliography of American local history is less clear. A series of three bibliographies of historical literature relating to Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont 
which were published in Norton's literary letter in 1859 and 1860, must have drawn on Ludwig's work. During his life, however, Ludwig had himself carefully kept notices of works to update and extend the scope of his published bibliography. These editions were sufficient to have doubled the size of the 1846 book, and several friends, including William Gowans and Samuel Austin Allibone, encouraged him to publish an expanded second edition. Ludwig insisted, however, that this would require a second bibliographical tour of the country to collect notices to complete the work, a trip for which he had neither time nor money. Although he did not live to see a second edition through to publication, his notes did survive him. When his library was auctioned by Bangs, Merwin & Company of New York in November and December 1858, included in the sale as lots 444 and 444A, were the fruits of this labor. The first, described as Bibliographia Americana, embracing Central America, Mexico, Brazil's West Indies, was a quarto manuscript volume containing notes which expanded the scope of the published work to cover the entire hemisphere. This volume came to the New York Public Library in 1899 as part of the library of Gordon Lester Ford and his two sons, Worthington Chauncey and Paul Lester Ford. The second lot was an interleaved copy of the published bibliography and its supplement with copious manuscript editions. <coughs> this volume is now also at the New York Public Library, where it arrived in August 1934 after passing through the hands of Almond W. Griswold and Joseph Sabin. I have no doubt that Ludwig's notes, both published and manuscript, were consulted by Sabin and his successors Wilberforce Eames and R.W.G. Vale as they compiled their monumental Bibliotheca Americana, a dictionary of books relating to America from its discovery to the present time. It is just this work, this use of his work by others, that proves Ludwig's comment, made in a letter to Joel Munsell of March 27, 1856, that, quote, true bibliographers understand each other. But further, it shows that the immigrant Ludwig brought with him to the United States bibliographical skills and scholarly interests with which he would begin work that would later be taken up by others. It seems to me that above all else, this pioneering side to his work deserves to be recognized and remembered today. I would like to close this first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography with a few reflections of my own. Several years ago, when I called on Saul Malkin, he read to me the following remark from a letter of Goethe which is quoted in the author's preface to George Schneider's Theory and History of Bibliography. In German it reads, Wer legen zu Recht und schachten ein wie für die Ewigkeit, indes die lebendige Natur in der Zeit sich wild und ungestimmt anlasst. And that's roughly, we put right and categorize as though for eternity, while living nature in our time appears wild and tumultuous. Saul was attempting to illustrate to me the impulse that brought him and many other bookmen, Ike Brussel, Jake Blank, David A. Randall, Edward Lazar, John Cohn, Frederick Melcher, Max Hartsoff, among others, together in New York City during the hard depression years of the 1930s. Ludovic must have felt a similar impulse in his day as he saw the revolutionary struggles of his homeland fail and participated in the efforts of his fellow countrymen to adapt to an unfamiliar and surely disorienting political, social, and economic freedom in this new world. 
This is not, however, an escapist impulse, for the effort to organize and make sense of the world around us is certainly one of the most activist of all impulses. I am reminded of another German political exile, Karl Marx, who for years suffered through poverty, ill health, and dreary English winters while pursuing in the British Museum the researches that were to lead to his most influential work, Das Kapital. Marx would surely have understood and sympathized with Ludwig's views that his bibliographical researches were meant to lay the groundwork for the study that would explain and justify the American democratic experiment. Perhaps it is an overstatement to claim that bibliography is based on a revolutionary impulse, but it would not be wrong to point out that any bibliography will always express and reflect the beliefs and worldviews of its compiler. On another occasion, when Saul and I were discussing the influence and importance of German bibliographers, he commented that he'd always been impressed by what he called the durchdringende, or penetrating, quality of their work. For me, this characterization has two aspects. Their ability to see through to and recognize the central issue in the work at hand, but also their impulse to seek out and organize in a thorough manner all the relevant material. I believe that both aspects are important elements in all good, good bibliography, and I've tried this evening to show how they are represented in the work of Hermann Ludwig. Books are difficult things. They have a way of disappearing and confusing. They promise what they are not able to reveal and conceal what they do contain. Bibliographies are the tools that we use to open up the treasure house of human experience and insight that is stored in books. Perhaps the richness which is revealed blinds us, and this explains why it is that we tend to miss bibliographies only when they do not exist and to take them for granted when they do. I believe that it is proper and important to remember and recognize those bookmen and bibliographers, servants to scholarship, who have dedicated their lives to creating the tools that make books useful. I thank you for giving me the opportunity this evening to honor two of these, Hermann Ludwig and Saul M. Malkin. Silver is fond of saying, why must we waste so much of our valuable time studying 17th and 18th century American bibliography when there is so little of it, and that's so boring, when we have the whole of the 19th century at our disposal? I think this is a good instance of what Rollo uh, said that we've had tonight. I hope you'll all join us for a glass of champagne in room 523.